Good morning, everybody. Friends new and old. Right, Uh, well, here's your starter for ten. So, um, what are these three blokes got in common? Can you can you see well enough? Sorry, sorry. Who was that? Yes. Um, and one other thing, one other f- common factor. No, not the next one. Go back if you would. They were all on British Britain's Got Talent within the last year or so. The first one is a guy called Ben Hart. He came third uh, this year. The second one is a chap called Mark Spellman who actually uh, performed uh, last year, didn't get further than semi-finals, um, but uh, presented himself as Magician X this year and came second. And the, uh, the, the, the other one is Richard Jones, and he actually won it last year. So, as you know, all of the best magicians are highly paid entertainers, and if you go onto the internet, you can find shops that will sell you props, like fake coins and trick decks of cards and other gadgets. And if it's a matter of sleight of hand and misdirection and clever gadgets, it's innocent fun. Um, but it can be a gateway. There is a less innocent side to magic, and it's ancient. And it goes back millennia. If you remember the Exodus story, we find magicians in Pharaoh's court, and that's 1400 BC, and they were around a long time before that. So, next slide. And that is the, uh, the, the logo of the, of the Magic Circle. You've probably heard of that, this kind of giant magician's club in, uh, in this country. And if you look at the inner ring, uh, those, those signs are signs of the zodiac. They're of extremely ancient origin, well before Moses. And if you want to know what that little bit of Latin at the bottom edge, indicilis privata loqui, means, anybody know? It's Latin for keep your trap shut or else. (laughs) Let's pray, shall we? Lord, as we approach your word, uh, Lord, we want to be people who take it seriously. We want your word to find root in our hearts. And Lord, we ask that the presence of your Holy Spirit would brood over us all this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Right, well, you may be thinking at this point that this is going to be a talk on the occult, but actually it, it isn't. Um, there are two reasons for that, actually. Firstly, the subject is going to come up in a much more direct way later in Acts, and I don't want to spoil anyone else's pitch. And secondly, that's actually not primarily what this passage is about. So let's do a quick recap. For those of you who are visiting, uh, we're going through Acts and have been for quite a few weeks. Um, so in the lead up to, uh, to today's passage, persecution has already broken out in Jerusalem. The first Christian martyr has uh, already died, that's Stephen. And we've just been introduced to Saul, the violent religious fanatic, before he meets Jesus and becomes Paul. And Saul, in his unregenerate uh, incarnation has been going from house to house. 
and he's been hunting down followers of Jesus. As a result, many of the Jerusalem church have already run for their lives to the surrounding areas of Judea and Samaria. The apostles have largely stayed put in solidarity with the ones who are left and the ones who have been taken into jail, Um, but a lot have already gone. But in the process, these folk have taken the gospel with them accidentally, if you call it accidental, fulfilling Jesus' commission just before his ascension. Next slide. In Acts 1.8, it says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses where? In Jerusalem, that's where it starts, and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So the gospel is starting to already expand and it's gone beyond the borders of Jerusalem. So now Acts shifts the scene from Jerusalem to Samaria and we find ourselves catching up with Philip. Good old anonymous Philip who barely warrants a mention in the Gospels. But here, he's been the catalyst for a bit of a revival. People are miraculously getting healed of disabilities, left, right and centre. They're coming to faith in Jesus. They're being baptised. And one of these, it turns out, is a local celebrity called Simon the Magician or Simon the Sorcerer. You find that in verse 13. There is no clear reason to assume that his conversion was not genuine. But it was defective and it was very shallow. Now news of this revival, as we would probably style it, filters back to the apostles in Jerusalem. So Peter and John decide to do uh, a bit of a recce up there. So they're a bit of a Batman and Robin duo in the early chapters of Acts. And they visit Samaria to investigate and discover that despite believing and being baptised... None of the Samaritan converts have apparently received the Holy Spirit. Why on earth not? It happened back in Jerusalem and nobody was needed to lay hands on or anything. The Holy Spirit just came. So we're not explicitly told, but I have a suggestion for that. If you go to the next slide, which is another scripture. It should be before that. Have we missed a slide or two? No, uh, that's the one. I will give you the keys of the kingdom. This is Jesus speaking to Peter. And he's saying, Peter, I am giving you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So he's giving Peter a lot of authority and he's saying, Peter, heaven is going to back you up. But what are these keys of the kingdom of heaven? What's being unlocked? Well, I think it probably means that unlocking access to the Holy Spirit because that's actually what we're seeing in, in Acts. So if you go to the table in the next one, 
um, that's a bit too small probably to see. So I'll just talk you through it anyway. So what the table is about is there are a, there's a list of passages in Acts where the Holy Spirit descends. So Acts 2 is Pentecost. Acts 8 is where we are now. Acts 10 is, we'll get to, but, um, but that's where the Holy Spirit comes upon Cornelius and household. And there's a further episode up later in, in Ephesus. And Paul is, uh, is the last one, but the first three are all Peter-focused. So um, it seems that, that Jesus is allowing Peter the privilege of opening the door to the Holy Spirit to, first of all, Jews in Acts 2, to Samaritans who are this other race who are partly Jewish and partly not um, in their own little locality. So that's in what we're dealing with at the moment. And later on, Peter gets to uh, open the Holy Spirit to up to uh, the Gentiles as well, and we'll get there. So let's go back to Simon a moment. And if we look at verse 10, we find that Simon is sometimes rather grandiosely known as uh, Simon, the great power of God. Um, now, he, Simon had got noticed, and Simon just loved it. He was the centre of attention, even in the somebody, amongst the somebodies and the maidets. Everybody wanted Simon at their party. He was an A-lister. But for the first time in years, he's been upstaged by Philip. So, he becomes... Philip's little shadow. How does Philip do stuff like this? And what wouldn't he, Simon, give to do tricks like that? And where did the power come from? The mystery one day is solved for him when Peter and John arrive and they start praying and laying hands on people for them to receive the Holy Spirit. And Simon watches so this is it. I've got to have that power. I know I'll ask Peter and, of course, I'll, I'll compensate him for his trouble. But Simon has made a terrible mistake on more than one level. First of all, as he's about to find out, Peter is not about to take prisoners. And in verse 20 and 20 to 23, he delivers an absolute broadside. Secondly, and more seriously, Simon just doesn't seem to have grasped the meaning of genuine repentance. It seems he doesn't really understand God at all. More of that in a minute. But taken aback, Simon, for the very first time, displays a little bit of humility. Verse 24 Pray to the Lord for me that nothing you have said may happen to me. But it's still a mistake. Why? Because God doesn't do second-hand relationships. If he'd have dropped to his knees and said, Oh God, forgive me, I didn't realise one. 
and said, Peter, would you pray for me? Then that would have been fine, but he's still just using Peter as a kind of uh, an intermediary between himself and God. And we need to have our own relationship, not just with others praying for us. So Peter and John head home. Job done. They've stopped to preach the gospel in just about every Samaritan village they come to en route because every village is a new opportunity. And Philip, meantime, he takes the desert road to Gaza and he has another adventure. And that is where the narrative of this particular story finishes. But of course, we're not finished because we're going to turn the spotlight onto ourselves and what we can take home from this story. So I've got some questions for us. Because a question is all, will take us more than halfway to an answer, won't it? First off, do we consider ourselves a nondescript, anonymous, also ran? Not the sort of person who lights up a room with their beauty or their sparkling personality, their amazing talent or their brilliant intellect. Maybe you think privately that Jesus kind of tolerates you, but you're not really one of his inner circle, that you're not special to him. Well, Philip could have thought all of those things. Perhaps he wasn't a handsome dude. He probably wasn't. He wasn't an obvious leader like Peter, James and John who were on the inner circle. As far as we know, Philip never led a church. But God had a really good view of Philip's heart as he does all of our hearts. And Philip's heart was humble enough to be usable is yours. Did you know that according to the scripture that God resists the proud? What does that mean in in practice? It means that he pushes them away. He says, keep your distance. On the other hand, you know that God favours the humble. So he draws them in and beckons them in. And the trouble with most of us, and I speak for myself, is that our default setting is, it's my life, I'll run it how I want, I know best. And it takes most of us a few really expensive lessons for that to sink in. But it needs to, it really, really needs to. God is far more interested in our availability than our ability It's not much point in being super gifted if we're selfish with it. How about you? Are you going to say, oh, sorry, Lord, I'd like to oblige you, but it's not convenient right now. Can you call back later? Because he may not. We need to start heeding when he says something and not just hearing. So here's another question. Lots of Christians are kind of interested in signs and wonders and healings. Maybe that's you. If you read verse 13, apparently there were loads happening all the time. 
Now, it strikes me that if we're interested, well, fair enough, but we might want to ask ourselves exactly why. So the worst-case scenario is it's just a Christianized interest in the paranormal. Signs are signs because they mean something, they say something, they point to something, and here are a few that you might want to think about. Next slide. So there's one. Signs are never a dead end. They are never an end in themselves. They're not a validation of faith for established Christians. They, what they are is a demonstration of God's reality, power, and love for people who haven't met Jesus yet. Next slide. I don't know what you'd make of that slide, or that, that sign if you met it. I wouldn't know what to make. Um, but signs are not confusing. They are clear or they're not signs, certainly not in any way that's biblical, because God doesn't play games with people. You might have heard um, of the concept that people are prayed for and they get healed and they lose their healing. If you haven't come across that, um, be blessed. I'm pleased for you. If you have come across it, it's rubbish. God does not play games with people. He doesn't mock our frailty. God treats us with a lot of respect. For example, he will never force himself on anyone who doesn't want to know. Next slide. They are never, of course, about us. Simon, he wanted to stay the star of his own show. So people would say, oh, wow, Simon's really something special. But actually, glory grabbing is something that we kind of do uh, quite subtly at times. A bit of glory for you, Lord, and a little bit for me. A bit for you, and a bit for me. We'll share it. But God rewards, but he doesn't share. Not like that. There's a big off-put to God. And if we do that, he'll stop using us. So next slide. Here is what slides are, of course, signs always are about. When they happen, they always lead us to Jesus 100% of the time. And Simon had completely missed this point. Third question. Lastly, have we really understood that Jesus expects those who name his name to move on from our past lives? Now, it's a lifetime's work to become like him. We know that, don't we? But sometimes it just needs some ruthless surgery to cut out unhealthy tissue. Sometimes if you've got a, a bad ulcer somewhere on, the, on your feet or something and you've got dead tissue there, it can't heal unless you cut the dead stuff out. It just can't heal. So you have to do a little bit of surgery and then the healing can begin. We do confession on Sundays. How deep does it reach? We have to forsake the exaggerated story, the sideways needling comment that only the target would get, the stolen limelight, The going missing when others are struggling and working flat out. These are the kind of grey, mundane sins that sometimes are never addressed in an entire lifetime. And we need to do it. 
And it also does include blatant stuff, consorting with evil. Simon didn't get it. I said I wasn't covering the occult in its many forms, but actually I do need to say, I feel, that as Christians we have to renounce anything that is occult-related, whether it's horoscopes, Ouija boards, or anything else. And what belongs to our ignorant past must be jettisoned because they will stop us from moving on. Well, we're nearly done. Uh, There's a small PS to this story. Has it occurred to you to wonder, what ever happened to Simon after this? Because, of course, we're not told. And there are multiple myths and legends that that grew up, um, the earliest of which is about a century later, and and they, they are many and various and probably all mythological, so not much point in, in speculating. What we do know is that he's never heard of again. But what happened to Philip? Well, we'll find out another episode of uh, Philip's story probably next time, um, but... What happened to all of the apostles? What happened to the guys who were relatively anonymous, like Nathaniel and Bartholomew and, and people like that? Where did they land up? Some sources are a bit more solid than others, if you could move on to that map. Now, um, do it here. So, uh, this is, is Israel down here, of course, and that is a big map. Uh, that's India. That, of course, is Spain. And what you see is that the apostles landed up absolutely everywhere. If you were with us uh, when we looked at, um, at uh, the day of Pentecost, we found that people could come from everywhere. They come from Bithynia and Parthia and, and all sorts of places, Scythia. And here's the reverse. So the apostles went out absolutely everywhere. Do you know, and God was with every single one of them, whether their stories are written in Acts or whether they're not. And our stories may seem totally insignificant, but they're not. They were special as you are special You have the privilege of the Holy Spirit and he will work, if allowed, uniquely with you. And here's my last question. Isn't that worth forsaking everything else for? Amen.